to Hebrews chapter 1, and then uh, I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll go into the sermon after, after I pray, after we read that. And if just give me a second to get set up here and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. That would be great. I do need to see what I'm doing here. That always helps. So Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. And um, I do want you to have the text in front of you. It'll be very, very important because we're going to be looking at it in some detail. And so I should have the text in front of me too. Here we go. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he had inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And we, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. And they will become old like a garment, and like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. This is God's word concerning his son. Let's pray, and then we'll go into the sermon. Father, we have just sang glory to your name. We have praised your name. We have sang that no one is like you. We have praised you for sending your son Jesus to pay the ransom for our sins. And Father, as we, we look into your word now, I just ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts 
would be pleasing in your sight. Father, we are about to uh, talk about things that are hard for us to comprehend and yet so important for us to understand. And so I just pray you would uh, fill me with your spirit that I might speak and fill all of us with your spirit that we might hear what your word has to say to us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Okay, you're going to have to excuse me because I've got to run down and get one piece of paper. And Robbie, am I on the, the mic? We good? It's okay? Oh, okay. We're going to use the pulpit mic. Is that what I heard? All right. Great. So that means I can take this contraption off, which is fine with me. Give me another second. You didn't know you came to see a show, huh? Okay. So this morning we're going to look at the book of Hebrews. I'm going to introduce the book kind of give an overview, and then we'll dive into the first part of chapter one. And so hopefully you already have chapter one in front of you. And there is a, uh, which is what I just went to get, is a note sheet that has an outline and also a chart that will help you to follow pretty much the second half of the sermon when we get there. So if you can dial in chapter one of Hebrews, if you haven't already. And I'm going to switch this. Okay. So, Christians at the crossroads. Have you ever been lost in the wilderness? Have you ever gone for a walk in the woods and suddenly realized that you weren't quite sure where you were, where you were headed? If you're going in the right direction or not, you had no map, you couldn't see any trail markers. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're in that situation, that you've gone for a hike, uh, the trail is not well-worn, few have gone this way before, and it's not easy for you to know for sure that you're on the right track. It sure seemed like a good idea when you set out early that morning. You'd been told that it wouldn't be an easy hike, but you were also told that the five-mile trail led up to a scenic cliff's edge overlook on a waterfall-fed lake, and so it would be well worth your effort. You thought you'd be there and you'd, in, by lunchtime, thought you'd make it, no problem. But now the sun has crossed its high point, and you still haven't gotten to that overlook. In fact, you're not sure you're still on that trail at all. You're disoriented. You don't know where you came from, nor what direction you should be heading. And what's worse, you're hot, you're thirsty, you've sprained your ankle. Progress is painful and slow. And maybe it's just your imagination, but you're pretty sure you just heard a large animal growling. Could it be a mountain lion? You had had visions of a bit of an adventure, but this was not what you had signed up for. 
the initial motivation that had driven you, that scenic cliff's edge overlook on a waterfall-fed lake, is quickly being replaced in your mind's eye with thoughts of the comforts and the safety of home, a chair to rest in, a good meal, a locked door, a warm bed. Right about now, that's what you'd rather see. Forget the waterfall and the lake. The book that you have open in front of you, the epistle to the Hebrews, was written to the first generation of Christians who found themselves in a similar scenario. They had struck out in a new direction. They were blazing a new trail that only a few, Jesus and his apostles, had trodden. The recipients of the letter were Jewish followers of Christ living in Judea. We can tell that immediately from the letter's contents. It's full of references, parallels, imagery, and direct quotations taken from the Hebrew scriptures. From Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the Psalms. In other words, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, or what they call the, the Hebrews call the Tanakh. The author must have expected the recipients would be well acquainted with these scriptures because he uses them in his lines of argumentation. And it's clear he and the audience viewed these scriptures as authoritative. But these Jewish believers, having struck out on this new adventure of faith, were finding the trail difficult. While they knew the Hebrew scriptures, its prophecies of a coming Messiah had only just been fulfilled. And how exactly all that worked, how Jesus fulfilled the scriptures, what the true role of Messiah was, all that had yet to be broadly proclaimed, let alone deeply understood. They did recognize Jesus as the Christ. That title is used a dozen times in the epistle without there ever being any argument or discussion to demonstrate that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. And just so we're all on the same page, that title, Christ, it comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one or the Messiah. So when we speak of Jesus as the Christ, we're referring to him by his title. Christ is his title, not his name, which is Jesus. So they knew Jesus was the Christ. What they didn't seem to grasp was exactly what that meant. And Jesus had brought a new understanding. You may remember that Peter, in the middle of Jesus' ministry, proclaimed, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's in Matthew 16. But it wasn't until Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, after his death, after his resurrection, after his appearances, it's in Luke 24, that the disciples understood what it meant to be Messiah. And Jesus told them, he said, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Directly from the mouth of the Lord, this is what the Christ is. But if the average believer was anything like Jesus' first disciples, they would have struggled to reorient themselves to this new understanding. Generally speaking, if they went to their local place of worship and asked the rabbi, they wouldn't be given the teachings that Jesus gave. And we know they couldn't log on to christianbook.com and order a Bible or a study guide or a commentary. They couldn't log on to the internet and ask Google, what does the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 mean for Christians today? And I don't know if you've ever done something like that, but it can be instructive. They couldn't do that. Forget the internet. Parts of the Bible had only just been written, and some still had yet to be. 
So there was a lack of access to information and a lack of understanding of the information that they did have. Their trail in this new wilderness, if you will, was difficult to discern. Which way should they go? And like that hot, thirsty hiker with a sprained ankle, they're also finding the circumstances difficult. And what I mean by that is there was persecution. You know, from the start, they had known, or they should have known, that it wouldn't be easy. Christianity had been birthed, after all, in persecution. Though Jesus' ministry had ended in the triumphs of resurrection and ascension and glorification, the path he himself had taken had led through suffering and crucifixion, and his followers were to suffer likewise. And in those early days, the Jewish religious and political establishment imprisoned, beat, and killed Christians. We know the story of Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church. He was stoned by the Sanhedrin, the, the great council of chief priests and scribes. We know the apostle Peter was arrested at least three times. Once with the apostle John by the temple guard, once with a group of apostles by the high priest and his associates, and once by Herod. Just prior to Herod's arrest, we also know that, the, that Herod had the apostle James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And it wasn't just the Jewish authorities, it was the, the Roman civil authorities as well. It was, after all, the Roman governor who sentenced Jesus to death by crucifixion. Paul was imprisoned at least three times in Philippi by that city's magistrates, then by the Romans in Jerusalem. And we know that directly from Scripture in, in Acts 16 and Acts 21. And then we can piece together parts of Acts, Philippians, 2 Timothy, and some of the ancient history that's available to us. And from that, at least some scholars believe that Paul was released from his house arrest in Rome and then arrested once again, that would be the third time, and thrown into a deep, dark dungeon to await his execution, which is traditionally understood to have happened by decapitation. And that was believed to have been carried out around the year 68. One theory of the origin of this epistle is that Paul wrote it while he was in Rome between those last two arrests, after he had been freed around AD 62 or 63. And this would have been just before a mass persecution and execution of Christians in Rome at the hands of Emperor Nero that happened in the year 64. And Paul's rearrest may have actually been part of that persecution. That persecution at the hands of Rome, by the way, is the growling sound that I mentioned that you hear on your imaginary hike. There was a great danger lying in wait for these early Christians. The persecution would started with Nero and it would be an ever-present threat for the first 250 years of the church's history. So given the uncertainties and the hardships, it's not too hard to understand that in those early days, there was a pull to return to the old ways, to return to the old covenant, to the temple and to the sacrifices. There was a longing for the comforts and the security of long-established tradition, and it would have been a strong pull. It's true that the Jews were also made to suffer in Rome, but if you were going to suffer, if you were going to walk that difficult road, wouldn't you want to be sure that you were on the right road? The old ways had the advantage of history. For 1,500 years, the people had worshipped under the law of Moses. Perhaps it would be good to hold on to those ways. And it's into this milieu that this letter is sent to these early Jewish followers of Jesus. The letter is written to encourage its audience to persevere in the midst of trials, to keep on hiking, 
It's also written to warn them of the consequences of not knowing and following the truth, of straying, if you will, from the trail. And so we see the writer encouraging his readers to keep on hiking. For example, if you want to flip there, it's fine, to chapter 6, verse 11. We read, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence for the love of Christ and the love of the saints, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish. You will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Be diligent. Don't be sluggish. Keep at it. Have faith. Be assured of your hope. You will reach that scenic overlook, if you will. You, you will reach the end. You will inherit the promises that are yours in Christ. Don't give up. And along with that encouraging message, there's also the issue of a warning. In chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, the writer tells them, You have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. See, there's something they need to know, something they need to listen to and learn and internalize and then teach to each other. They need to grow up, taking the deeper truths. And to do that, they've got to first get the basics straight. So, back to my analogy, they need to know where it is they're headed in the wilderness. They need to know the right direction to that scenic overlook. Maybe even more basic, they need to know what that scenic overlook even is. In chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, the writer warns his audience that indeed, it is possible to get lost He writes about those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. And he compares these lost ones, those who have fallen away, to ground that drinks the rain but yields thorns and thistles. It is worthless and close to being crushed and it ends up being burned. And all this is against the backdrop of God being a consuming fire. That's in chapter 12, verse 29. But he also says this is not what he hopes for his hearers. He intends to show them the way that they should go with the intention of exhorting and encouraging them along the way. His aim, Hebrews 12, 12, is to strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for their feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now here's the big question. How does the writer go about doing that? How does he go about strengthening the weak and healing the broken? What is the information that the writer to the Hebrews feels is critical to bring to to support his readers? What is vital for their survival in their wilderness journey? What is the map that he gives them? What are the trail markers? What what does he give them? The answer, though simply stated, is profound and rich and worthy of our careful attention and study. What does he give them? He gives them true north. He gives them sound scripture-based doctrine. He gives them the truth. But the truth that he gives is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not merely a system of doctrine or beliefs. Now, don't get me wrong. The do's and don'ts and the system of beliefs are all important, and he does give them that. But what he gives them is 
much more than merely that. While he's telling them to bear up and be diligent and persevere, the truth that he gives them is not empty encouragement. It's not, you can do this. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. He's not giving them a mere motivational speech, though his speech is motivational. What is he giving them? In a word, he's giving them Jesus. He's giving them Christ. He's giving them the Messiah. This is the overarching purpose of the letter to the Hebrews, to give the people Christ, to tell them what it means that Jesus is the Christ, and to lift up Jesus as the Christ in such a way that the readers will understand the nature of Christ and the character of Christ and the work of Christ and the significance of Christ and the glory of Christ. Christ is the consummation of all things. You see, it's been my observation that some people do view the Bible as God's instruction manual for living, a book that provides the knowledge of what's right and what's wrong and gives wisdom that helps us discern the one from the other. And it is that, but fundamentally, it's more than that. And some people view the Bible as a source of hope, comfort, encouragement, and power for living, a book that stirs our passions to love God, our, um, stirs our compassion to love our neighbors, and strengthens our hearts to persevere in that. And the Bible is that, but fundamentally, it's more than that. And some people view the Bible simply as a map to heaven, a book that teaches us doctrine, what we need to know to be saved, to be saved from God's condemnation, which is the ultimate consequence of the wrong we've done. And what do we need to know to spend eternity in the light of God's love? And of course, the Bible is that. But fundamentally, it's more than that. Fundamentally, the Bible is the story of the truth about Jesus. You see, to live rightly is more than just following the Bible's rules. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And that verse comes from the Faith Hall of Fame chapter, where the author lists all the saints of yesteryear who by faith pleased God. And the faith that they had was a forward-looking faith in God's promise. It's actually a promise they never saw, he says in chapter 11, verses 13 and 39. It's a promise they never saw. That's because the promise was Jesus, the one whom the story is all about, the one in whom they had faith, though they had not seen, the one in whom we must have faith, the one we must come to know if we are to please God. And again, to find hope, comfort, encouragement, and power for living, we need to know that Jesus is, it is Jesus in whom the reality of these things is found. How ultimately does the the writer to the Hebrews encourage his readers? He tells them in verse 12, 2, a familiar verse, to fix their eyes on who? Fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And how ultimately can we come to God for help in time of need? Only chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 tell us, by holding fast to our confession, our confession that Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh, endured the temptation and suffering, and has gone on ahead of us to God's throne making it possible for us, under the covering of his purifying blood, to draw near, as the writer says, draw near with confidence to God's throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So to find hope, comfort, encouragement, and power for living, we need to know and follow the one who's gone on ahead of us, and that is Jesus. 
And finally, to know the way to heaven, we need to know the story of how Jesus paved the road and opened the gate by offering his body once for all. Hebrews 10.10 tells us that. And we need to come to him who, by one offering, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Hebrews 10.14. He is the way, as he told his disciples in John 14.6, and no one comes to the Father but through him. So the overarching message throughout Hebrews is that Christ is the consummation of all things. And what I mean by that is that it's because of Christ that God empowers us to please him. It's because of Christ that we can persevere. It's because of Christ that we are purified, purified and perfected that we might enter heaven. And it is Christ himself that is our goal, the one on whom we fix our eyes, the one on whom, to whom we go. So all the Bible is his story. He is the one theme that ties everything together, and the writer of the book of Hebrews wants us to know that. Now, I've already been showing you that, quoting from Hebrews as we went along, but I want to show you a little bit more. I want to show you what's in the writer's, <clears throat> that it is the writer's aim to put the spotlight on Jesus. I'm sorry, I want to show you that it is the writer's aim to put the spotlight on Jesus and what it means for him to be the Christ and I want to show you that by doing a very quick survey through Hebrews. I'm going to start in Hebrews 1, pick a verse from each chapter, which was not easy, by the way, because there's a lot of significant, familiar, off-quoted verses in Hebrews. I'm going to read a key verse and give you a brief commentary with the intent of showing you that it really is all about Jesus so that I can show you and you don't just take my word for it. So back to Hebrews 1. In verse 10... We're told, which we read this morning, <clears throat> that the Father says to Jesus, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. The message here is Jesus is God, and not just a God, but the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, Yahweh, or I Am, which is printed in our English Bibles as the Lord, with Lord in small caps font. Hebrews 1 tells us, Jesus is God. Hebrews, Hebrews 2, verse 17 says, Therefore Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. The message here is Jesus became a flesh and blood man. You'll note every, almost every verse I'm going to read has the name Jesus in it, by the way. Hebrews 3, 3 says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. The message here is that Jesus is the better Moses. He's the prophet of prophets, if you will. He's the ultimate mediator between God and man. <clears throat> Hebrews 4.8 says that if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. The message here is that Jesus is the better Joshua. He is the ultimate giver of rest. Hebrews 5.9-10 says that Jesus became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The message, Jesus is the better high priest and king. He's the ultimate sacrifice giver and the ultimate ruler and provider of life. Hebrews 6, 19 through 20 says, This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. In other words... We have a sure hope of eternal fellowship with God 
a sure hope of heaven because Jesus has opened the way for us. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The message here is Jesus is the guarantor of our eternal salvation. In Hebrews 8, verses 6 through 10, or 6 and 10, it says that Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry by as, as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The message here is that Jesus is the minister and mediator of the new covenant, a better covenant. In the old covenant, the law was on tablets of stone, and God was behind a veil. But now, because of Jesus, God enters the hearts and minds of his people and works in our minds and our hearts to cause us to love and obey him. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12 says, But when Jesus Christ appeared as a high priest of good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered by the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Sorry. Shouldn't touch the computer, right? The message here is that Jesus is the new and ultimate sacrifice. He is the necessary, perfect, complete, final, and only effective payment for sins. And Hebrews 10.14 says, For by one offering Jesus has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And this builds on the previous chapter, teaching that Jesus' sacrifice is not only the all-sufficient payment for our sins, but also provides for us the all-sufficient purification without which we cannot see God. And then in Hebrews 11, 39 through 40, after that faith hall of fame passage, where the writer talks about those men of old that followed God by faith, um, and we're told that they acted in obedience not because they had already received the promised blessing, but because they put their trust in God's promise of a future blessing. We read, All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Now that's something better that God provided, as the author explains in the next chapter, that is Jesus. That something better is Jesus. The point being that Jesus is the promise. He is that ultimate promise, the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise in which the faithful men of old had faith even though they never saw him. And Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, builds on this point that Jesus is the promise and tells us not only is he the promise fulfilled, but he is also the ultimate example of what it means to live by faith because he is the originator, the founder, and the leader, the captain of our faith. And he is also the completer of our faith. He is the one who has done all that was required to fulfill the promise of God. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, I hope uh, familiar to most of you, says, Therefore, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus is our example. He's our leader. He's our encouragement. He's our support. 
And he's the one who's made good on all of God's promises and will make good on those promises to all believers. And finally, we reach the end of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 8. We were brought back, actually, to the beginning, back to chapter 1, and we were are reminded that Jesus is God, where we read that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I say this is a reference to Jesus' deity because it points us back to Hebrews 1, verses 10, 11, and 12, which we read uh, just the beginning of the sermon, <clears throat> where speaking of Jesus as the Lord God, Yahweh of the Old Testament, the writer says, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. Like a garment, they will be changed. And here's the key point. But you are the same. You are the same, echoing the words that we read at the end of Hebrews. Same thing at the beginning of Hebrews. You are the same. Your years will not come to an end. This is Jesus, the creator God, the last chapter tells us. He's the one who is with us, who will not leave us or forsake us. Chapter 13 also tells us. And he also tells us that he's the one who helps us. He's the one through whom we, through whom we worship and to whom our worship is due. Now, I know that was a whirlwind tour, and thank you for hanging in there with me. But I wanted to give you an overview so you could see the point. So I'm going to recap and pull it all together. <clears throat> it really is all about Jesus. That was the point. And who is Jesus? He is God. Who is Jesus? He became a man. Who is Jesus? He is the mediator between God and man who came to lead his people to peace and rest with God. And he did that by offering himself as the only ultimately acceptable sacrifice that could pay for and purify us from our sins. So he's both high priest who offers the sacrifice and he's the sacrifice itself. And so he's both the fulfillment of the requirements of God's law given to men of old and the fulfillment of the promises of salvation and blessing given to men of old. Not only has Jesus opened up for us the way to come to God, but he lives forever to ensure that the way stays open and he leads us on the way and supports us along the way. He gives us an example to follow along the way and he gives us his presence and his power to follow him to the end. That's the message of the book of Hebrews in a nutshell. The author says, I want to tell you who Jesus is. I want you to understand his identity, his nature, his character, his work. I want you to understand the significance of his work. I want you to know that who Jesus is is grounded in what was taught in the law and the prophets and the Psalms. But I also want you to understand that who Jesus is is better than the law and the prophets and the Psalms because Jesus is the truth behind all that they spoke and the truth toward which they all pointed. He is the reality, if you will. He is the solid thing, and they are just the shadow that he cast. This leads us to the, the Christian claim that the Christ is God. So the peop, as I said, the people to whom Hebrews is written find themselves in the wilderness, much like their forebears. Situations not unlike the Hebrews under Moses when they had just left Egypt. There is confusion, there's doubt, there's the pull to turn back to the old ways. There's hardship and struggle. The enemy's on the prowl, and he's even won some battles, and he's definitely assembling his forces with plans to do much greater damage. And there are some who are falling away. And the writer to the Hebrews, possibly, as we said, Paul writes to give them Jesus. And what's the first thing he gives them? In chapter 1, it's 
clear and simple, if shocking, the thesis that he gives him, and that is that Jesus is God. And the writers presenting this claim is foundational. It's the idea that he wants to get settled right up front in the first chapter <clears throat> or the meaning of all the rest and what we just went through will be confused. That claim that Jesus is God is really the cornerstone of the book of Hebrews. Now, chapter 1 is divided naturally into two main sections. Section 1 is verses 1 through 4, and section 2 is verses 5 through 14. As we'll see, section 1 serves as an introduction, I hope you'll see, both to chapter 1 and to the entire epistle. Here the author lays out in summary form his thesis that Jesus is God. Then in section 2, that's verses 5 through 14, that's where all the Old Testament quotations are. If you notice in your Bible, there's lots of all caps in most editions. That means it's quotations from the Old Testament. That's where he supplies his supporting information from the Hebrew Scriptures. So this morning we're just going to dig in now, after giving that overview, into the first four verses. And I hope to be able to come back maybe next month and we'll look at the supporting information that comes in the rest of the, the chapter. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 again, and then we'll dive in. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of the glory, of his glory, <clears throat> and the exact representations of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he had inherited a more excellent name than they. <clears throat> so as I said, the thesis is Jesus is God. That's a simple statement, but it's a very bold claim, and it's a, it would be a shocking claim to Hebrew ears. And it's so shocking, it should be shocking to us as well, knowing that Jesus was a man, to hear that he is God. It's so shocking, I think, that we ought not to affirm it unless it is indeed true. The Jewish believers certainly would have understood the consequences of getting this wrong. Right? In Exodus 20, they're told, by God, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. They were told there's only one God, the one who brought them out of Egypt, and they're there to worship him and him alone. But the writer to the Hebrews is telling them Jesus is God. So how can this be true? The Christ is God. The commendation chiasm. In his commentary on this epistle, uh, Calvin says in the, about these first couple of verses we just read that the author honors Christ with high commendations in order to lead us to show him reverence. The author honors Christ with high commendations. And I really think that's a good picture of what this section of text really is. It's a string of commendations. 
When you think of commendations, I want you to picture in your mind an army general or a navy admiral in their full dress uniform. And you know they have those racks of those colorful ribbons and medals on their chest, and each one represents an achievement or a citation or a service that they've completed or a commendation they've received. And if you know what the colors and symbols mean, with a glance you can know who it is you're dealing with, what they've done, and how distinguished they are. And that's sort of what we're looking at here in the first four verses. It's a list of commendations that tells us who Jesus is and how distinguished he is. And it's really a jam-packed list. But it's no ordinary list. These commendations are superlatives. And properly understood, they are commendations. I'm going to say condemnations. They are commendations that can only ultimately be true of God. And so as they are spoken of Jesus, they lead us to this one inescapable conclusion that Jesus is the one and only true God. And that's what I want to show you for the remainder of the sermon. I'll tell you up front that I'm not going to do justice to this text. I'm going to try to lead us to the water, as they say, but we really don't have time to drink it all, which makes sense. Jesus is God. That's a big truth. But also, this section is so dense, it's so filled with meaning and significance. And so I'm going to urge you to go home, go through it yourself with your study Bible or Bible with a a good cross-reference, a set of cross-references, or a good commentary, and there are lots you can look up online. And as you go through it, do it in a spirit of prayer and worship and reverence and ask God to speak to you. And I think you will be amazed, as I was, how much is here. And more than that, you will be amazed at who Jesus is and how great God is, and you will glorify and adore him. So I urge you to take time to do that this week. Okay, enough on the preamble. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. So I said there are common commendations, and there are actually 11 of them. So we've got a lot of material to chew on. And I've listed them on your, the notes in that table. If you can see, 1 through 11, they're numbered there. And they are that God has spoken in him, that is Jesus, that Jesus is God's son, that God appointed him heir of all things, that God made the world through him, that he is the radiance of God's glory, He is the exact representation of God's nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He has made purification of sins. He has sat down at the right hand of majesty. He has become as much better than the angels, and he has inherited a more excellent name than the angels. Seems like kind of a a long list. And having laid it out, I realized that it's not just a kind of random shopping list, grocery list. I realized that it actually has a form to it. That was carefully thought out and laid out. And that form is a chiasm. Now, chiasm might be a new word for you. No worries. The word chiasm comes from the Greek letter chi, which is shaped like an X. And the idea is that it's, the letter is a mirror image of itself. The top half is a mirror image of the bottom half. And so the term chiasm is used to describe a pattern in literature where there's a mirror image in the text. In other words, the text can be divided up into blocks that appear to be ordered in a pattern that follows a sequence, and there's a string of text um, that's followed by a string of similar text that appears in reverse order. So a simple chiasm would, would be A, B, B, A, let's say. And an example uh, that I found is the adage, to fail to prepare is to prepare to fail. So you can see the pattern, A, B, B, A. That's a simple one. In literature, 
um, the chiasms involve not just the re repetition of words in a pattern, but the, the repetition of blocks of text that convey ideas in a pattern. So you might not see the very same words repeated in mirror image form, but similar words that convey the same concept will appear in a pattern, or you might see related concepts appearing in a pattern, or sometimes even opposite concepts or slightly different concepts. And chiasms can be much more complex. Instead of A, B, B, A, for example, there might be an A, B, X, B, A. So something unique in the middle. And we mark it with an X. Um, in this list of 11 commendations, it's an odd number, so there's going to be an X in the middle. And you can see on the chart that I handed out that it's A, B, C, D, X, D, C, B, A. That's the pattern. You can see that in the leftmost column. So I want you to think of this now as an argument that builds from the outside in, where it builds from the foothills of a mountain up to the summit. It builds from A to B to C and so on up to X, which is at the center or the peak. And that's commendation number six. Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature. And this is being by virtue of the uh, fact that it's at the X, at the peak. It's the climax of the argument. It's the main point the author is trying to make. And you might have even gotten the feeling that the argument seemed to tail off in the end um, as we read through the list. I don't know if you caught that, but it kind of comes to a high point, and then it, it starts slow, comes to a high point, tails off. So let's follow the argument from the outside in, from the bottom to the top. I'm going to start with element A, which at the beginning of the chiasm is these first two commendations. God has spoken in Jesus, and Jesus is God's son. And at the end of the chiasm, the last two commendations that are in verse 4, that Jesus has become much better than the angels, and that Jesus has inher inherited a more excellent name than the angels. So now I want to tell you how he's connected. So in the beginning of the, the chapter, the author writes that God spoke long ago in the prophets in many portions in many ways, and he's saying that God sent his messengers with only parts of his message. And the message was given in different ways, face-to-face, -face, in visions, dreams, in plain language, and parables. But he didn't send the whole of his wisdom. He didn't complete the picture. He left open the mystery, in particular, of how he would save his people from judgment, the judgment that's due their sins. And he didn't send his message um, in, this, in the way that he did in these last days. Because in these last days, he sent his son with the message his son who is his word, as John calls him, the Logos, who, his son who is his wisdom. Paul says that Christ is the wisdom of God to us in 1 Corinthians 1. And, and we know that Jesus is the final and complete word of God. He's the final and complete wisdom of God in that he was the answer to how God saves his people. He himself said the son of man came to give his life a ransom for many. And the son, of course, has a superior name to, than the prophets of old. Hebrews 3.3 3, uh, tells us that he has been counted, we read it already, that he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Moses was but a servant, the book of Hebrews goes on to tell us, but Christ was a son. He was a son over the house, and his house is, is us, his house is the church. The message then of the first two commendations that God has spoken in Jesus and that Jesus is his son is that Jesus is better than the prophets of old. 
He's a better messenger coming with a better name. And this is how it then parallels the ending of the chiasm. Because verse 4 brings a very similar claim, but kind of turns it up actually a notch. You see, those first commendations that God gave his full and final message through Jesus and that Jesus is God's son, they're, they're paralleling that last commendation that says that Jesus has become much better than the angels and that he has inherited a more excellent name than the angels. Now, you might be saying, how exactly is that parallel? The parallel becomes clearer when you realize that the Greek word for angel, angelos, means messenger. And that same word, angelos, was used in a few instances in the Hebrew scriptures to refer not just to the angels that we usually think of, but to, to the prophets. It referred to Haggai as an angel. John the Baptist's uh, prediction of John the Baptist, he was called an angel. And even uh, the priests were called angels. Now, Jesus is the better angel in the sense that he's the better messenger. But note that the text is very clear. He's not an angel. He's better than the angels. That's because he inherited a better name than they. And what is his name? It's what we learned in verse 2, son of God. So the beginning of the argument in verse 1 and 2 reflects on the ending of the argument in verse 4 with the claim that Jesus has brought God's best message, his full and final message, and that Jesus has the best name, God's Son. So this is the foundational claim that the writer's making. Who is Jesus? He's God's Son with God's final message. And both the beginning and the end of this section are telling us that. And before we build upward on this foundation and inward to the center of the chiasm, as an aside, I wanted to address the temporal nature of what's being said in verse 4. <clears throat> you might have noticed that it says, that Jesus having become as much better than the angels. The idea also of inheriting something like a name sounds like that one time Jesus didn't have a more excellent name than the angels, and then at some time later he was given it. Now this might seem like a problem. If the author's point here is that Jesus is God, don't, don't we see that as a problem? After all, isn't God eternal? Doesn't God... Doesn't the Bible tell us of the Lord that he is the same? We actually just read that. And his years will not come to an end. And doesn't Mal Malachi in particular says, I, the Lord, do not change. And in, in the New Testament, James says that in the Father, there's no variation, no shifting shadow. So how could Jesus, if he is God, become better than the angels at some point in time and at some point in time inherit a name? Wouldn't that be him changing? Well, I bring that up because it, uh, segues right into the uh, B elements of the chiasm. Commendations three, that God has appointed him heir of all things, and commendation nine, that he sat down at the right hand of majesty. The answer is <clears throat> that there is a temporal or a time-dependent aspect to what's being said here, but there's also an eternal or time-independent aspect to what's being said. First, let's look at how these two commendations are related. So we're looking at commendations B. They are related through Jesus' office as king. And if you want to notice on the right, I have, where I have the column title, it says that prophet, king, priest, God, priest, king, pro prophet. So we're now at, at king. So these parts of the chiasm, elements B, are related by the fact of Jesus being king. And as we look at what that means, we'll see 
that there is an eternal, unchanging aspect to Jesus' kingship, and there's also a temporal or changing aspect to Jesus' kingship. It is true that in one sense, Jesus never changes, and in another sense, Jesus does change. And I'll explain that that can make perfect sense too. When the writer says in verse 2 that God has appointed him heir of all things, he's saying that Jesus owns or possesses all things. In other words, Jesus is Lord or King of all things. And notice he says all things. If Jesus is owner or Lord of all things, that means there's a distinction between him and all things. In other words, he's not counted among the things. And this is a hint of what's going to hit us more forcefully when we get to element C. So it's kind of like nesting dolls here. Sorry. But when we get to C of the chiasm. But what we're beginning to see here is an indication of the creator-creation distinction. The earth is a thing. The stars are things. You're a thing. I'm a thing. The universe is a thing. Even angels and demons are things. But here, the writer doesn't include Jesus as a thing. He's appointed heir of all things not heir of all other things. So put that on the back burner for a moment because we're going to come back to it. But when the writer says in verse 2 that Jesus has appointed him heir of all things, he's saying that Jesus is king over all. And this is an assertion that applies for all times and does not change. Here's a way to think about how that works. Jesus is heir by virtue of his sonship. He is eternally the son of the father. We'll talk about that in a moment, too. But for now, I can say this. In human terms, the son receives the inheritance when the father dies, right? And what's clearly, uh, that's clearly not what the writer means by inheritance here, because God the father doesn't die. That means that Jesus inherits everything from the father by virtue of the fact that he is the, he is the son, not by virtue of the fact that his father dies, because the father cannot die. Not only that, but God the Father doesn't change. And it's exactly because God doesn't change that Jesus' inheritance is eternal. If you can follow this, Jesus is eternally the Son, and God the Father is eternally the Father. If there were a time before Jesus was the Son, then there would be a time before the Father was the Father. But because God doesn't change, both the Son and the Father are eternally the Son and the Father. I hope that makes sense. So Jesus' Sonship and therefore his inheritance, are eternal. They have no beginning, and they have no end. Jesus possesses everything the Father possesses. He has always possessed it. He will always possess it. And so he is the heir, the king, and rules the universe, just as his Father is the king. So his being heir of all things, in verse 2, and his having sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, verse 3, are parallel statements, because they both point to Jesus' kingship. But there's also a contrast between Jesus' heirship and his sitting down at the right hand. His having sat down at the right hand of majesty refers to an event that happened in time, at least as we understand it from our side of eternity. What's being spoken of here is explained in more detail by Paul in Ephesians 1, verses 19 through 22, where Paul prays that the Ephesians' hearts would be enlightened to understand this that they would be enlightened to understand what is the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us who believe that it is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised, when he raised him from the dead. So it's happening in time. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all the church. What I want you to see from that text is that there did come a point in time where God raised Jesus from the dead, he sat him at his right hand, and gave him a name above every name, that is, Lord Jesus Christ, or Lord Yahweh Messiah, and he made him king and ruler over all rulers and powers. And what was that point in time? It was after his resurrection and ascension. So we put these B elements together, and we see that in eternity, Jesus is king, has always been king, and will always be king, but also we see that there was a point in time when he was made king, and this is okay for two reasons. First of all, a proper understanding of the doctrine of incarnation tells us that Jesus took unto himself the form of a human. He has two natures then, that of the deity, he existed in the form of God, Philippians 2 tells us, and also that of humanity, he became flesh, John 1:14 tells us. In his deity, Jesus never changes, but in his humanity, he was born, he grew, he ate, he got tired, he slept, he woke, he woke up, he traveled from place to place, and he suffered, and he died, and he rose again, and he ascended to the Father's right hand. What is true of his deity is not necessarily true of his humanity. These two are separate natures, and they have separate characteristics. So it's okay for make a statement that doesn't depend on time and a statement that does depend on time. And that's what we have in this chiasm here. But there's also a reason, there's another reason why it's okay, and that has to do with our limited capacity to understand eternity. See, God is in eternity, never changing. He was and is and is to come. He exists eternally as the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, never changing. Yet at the same time, he interacts with a temporal world. He created it at some point in time. He continually sustains it. He's entered into it many times in many ways, as we've seen, speaking through the prophets, sending his angels, and in, in these last days, he sent his son. And in that eternity, stepped into time, as songwriter Michael Card put it. Eternity stepped into time. How does that even work? I don't think we can really understand it. You can't understand it any more than if you were a two-dimensional creature living in a two-dimensional world, and you wouldn't be able to understand a three-dimensional shape. But getting back to Hebrews, the author's point is that Jesus has always been king and heir of all things, and he became king and inherited all things when he completed his mission in this world. And that mission is what brings us then to the C elements in the chiasm. That's commendation four and commendation eight. Commendation four is that God made the world through Jesus, and commendation eight is that Jesus made purification of sins. You might ask, how are those related? Well, the first tells us that God created the world through Jesus, and the second tells us that God recreated the world, if you will, through Jesus. And in both activities, Jesus was the instrumental cause or the agent by which the action was completed. In creating the world, we know that God spoke, the light shone, and the world took shape. That speech, that was the word of God, that was the Son, S-O-N, The Apostle John tells us that all things came into being through Jesus, and apart from Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. And so Jesus was the actor. He was the agent. He was the word of God spoken at creation. He was the mediator through which 
God brought the universe into existence. In the same way, Jesus is the actor, the agent, the mediator that God sent into the world to bring new life to the world. He's the mediator through which God recreates the believer. This new life, this recreation, is brought about by his work in the world to make purification for sins. That's Commendation 8. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5, 15 through 17, that he, Jesus, died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. And here's here's the, the catch. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature or a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So, in creation, God made the world through Christ, through the work of Christ. And in recreating the believer, God makes a new creation, a new creature, through the work that is the death and resurrection of Christ. And that brings us to commendations 5 through 7, 5 and 7. Christ's mediating work is not limited to his having created the world and recreating believers. It also involves his displaying the glory of God and sustaining the universe. And that's what these two commendations, 5 and 7, are all about. That Christ is the radiance of God's glory and that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. He is the radiance of God's glory. Think about what this means. What, what does glory mean? It means brilliance, brightness, dazzling light, and then figuratively it means divine perfection or moral excellence. And what does radiance mean? It means light flashing forth, gleam, radiation. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, means he is the light of God's light. Jesus is how we see God's glory. He mediates God's glory to us. He manifests God's moral perfections to us. The early church fathers took this as a statement of Jesus' eternal divine nature. And they said that Jesus was light of light, very God of very God. And that's coming in part from Hebrews 1, verse 3. Here's an analogy that might help. If it doesn't, you can set it aside. You can think of the sun. How do we see the sun? By the light that it gives off. If the sun were not there, there'd be no light. But if there were no light, there could be no sun. It's just like what we said about the father and the son. The father cannot be the father without the son. The son cannot be the son without the father. Similarly, Jesus is the light of God's glory. He's the excellence of God's moral perfection. He he is the demonstration of God's glory to us. And this was true from eternity past. It was true, and it was true during Jesus' earthly ministry. John, uh, back to John 1, there's a lot of uh, connections with John 1. But John 1.14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and what did we see? We saw his glory, glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So it's true from eternity past that Jesus is the glory of God. It was true during his earthly ministry, and it's also going to be true in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and the new earth where we're told in Revelation that the city has no need, the new Jerusalem has no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp, its lamp is the lamb. So you see that God illumines it and Jesus illumines it. So Jesus is the light of the glory of God. He eternally mediates God's brilliance to the universe. And this relates Commendation 7 that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power, or by his powerful, uh, sorry, relates to Commendation 7, that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. 
or by his powerful word. Commendation 7 tells us that Jesus is the instrumental agent by which the world is held together. Not only did God will that the universe be created and Jesus accomplished that creation, but God also wills that the universe continues to exist. And it is Jesus, Jesus' activity, Jesus' powerful word that accomplishes that will, that holds all things together. So in addition to Jesus eternally shining forth the glory of God, he is also that power that goes out from God, that enters into time and space, and holds all of time and space together. So that's how it connect those two commendations, seven, five, and seven. And then this finally brings us to the pinnacle of the chiasm. <clears throat> You've made it to the top of the mountain. Element X, which is commendation six, that he is the exact representation of God's nature. So you might want to you know, hold on to your hats for this one, too. It's a little, a little tough, but we're, we're going to get there. The Greek word for exact representation is a single word, actually. It's character, which sounds like character. So I can just say character. It's the word from which we get our word character. The root meaning of character in the Greek is a tool that's used for engraving. And it came to mean a die or a mold or a stamp that was used to impress an image on a coin or, or a seal, as they used to seal the letters in with wax. Or it also could mean the image itself. In this case, character or stamp, the character or character or stamp conveyed the reality behind the image. So Jesus, we're being told, conveys the reality. That's what the express image means. The reality, what, what is the reality he's conveying? Hebrews 1.3 says he's the exact representation of God's nature. And the word for nature here is hypostasis, and it means the underlying substance or the reality. So putting this together, Jesus, when it says Jesus is the character that conveys the, the, hypos, the reality of the hypostasis of God, what it's telling us is he is the stamp that expresses the reality of the substance of God. Now, for this to be true, for Jesus to be the stamp that expresses the reality of God, Jesus must possess all of the qualities of God. He must himself be God. One commentator put it this way, There is in the Father nothing which is not reproduced in the Son, save the relation of the Father to the Son. So Jesus the Son is not the Father, but he is the exact image and substance of the Father. And that means that the Father and the Son, while being distinct persons, share in one substance, in one essence. So the Father is God and Jesus is God. And we could look, uh, we don't have time to look to John 5. If you want to look to John 5, 19 through 23, Jesus says that. He says that he can't do anything of himself, but he does what he sees the Father doing. He's the exact representation of the Father. It's, it's, a, it's a good spot to go look. And you can see the Pharisees were understanding what he was saying. They wanted to stone him because he was claiming to be equal with God. So Jesus would put his stamp of approval on this description of him as the, as the stamp of God's substance. So now, having arrived at the summit of the mountain of commendations, we can look back down and we can see that A, corresponding to element A, Jesus is the eternal and ultimate prophet who delivers the last and complete message of God. B, Jesus is the eternal and ultimate king who owns all and rules over all. 
um, element C, Jesus is the eternal and ultimate priest who mediates God's life and God's glory. And finally, X, that Jesus shares the substance of divinity with the Father. The message from Hebrews 1, at least the first four verses, the message that God has preserved for 2,000 years for us to hear today is that Jesus is God. And that brings us to our conclusion that Christ is God. This is the critical truth. Why is the truth that Christ is God so important? Why is it so critical? There's a ton that could be said here, and I'll say more in the next sermon. But I've spoken for much too long already. I just want to look for a moment at what the writer to the Hebrews tells his readers in chapter 2. You look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. And what have we heard? We've heard that Jesus is the center of the message of Hebrews, that Jesus is the center of the story of the Bible that Jesus is the message from God, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the creator and sustainer and savior and owner and ruler of all things. We've heard that Jesus is God. It is to this that we must pay closer attention. Why? To the writer of the Hebrews, the answer is so that we do not drift away. So brothers and sisters, this truth that Jesus is God, it is the foundation of our faith. Jesus himself is the foundation of our faith. You see, if Jesus is not God, then the word that he spoke is a lie. If Jesus is not God, then his commands, they are not worth following. If Jesus is not God, then the sacrifice that he made cannot save. If Jesus is not God, then his resurrection is of no benefit to us. And if Jesus is not God, then we are worshiping the wrong God. But the truth is that Jesus is God, and that truth changes everything. Because Jesus, because Jesus is God, his words are faithful and true. Because Jesus is God, his commands are righteous and authoritative and demand our obedience. Because Jesus is God, he was qualified to be both priest and sacrifice and to save us from our sin. And because Jesus is God, when he rose again, he is, he is seated at the right hand of majesty, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. And because Jesus is God, we have the privilege, indeed the obligation, to bow our knees, to prostrate ourselves before him, even to join in with all the angels of God, as the writer to the Hebrews said, says, to join in with all the angels of God and worship him. Jesus is God. Let's praise his name. Heavenly Father, I, just, I know that was a lot, <clears throat> a lot to take in. I just pray that it um, communicated the awesomeness of your son, Jesus, and the truth that you have meant for us to hear today and throughout all the ages, that Jesus is God. Father, I pray that you would apply that to our, our lives, our everyday lives, that we might understand that who, who we look to who we follow, who we worship, who we love. And we, when we say we, we love Jesus, we're saying we love God. When we say we follow Jesus, we're saying we follow God.
Father, I just pray you would imprint that on, on our hearts, that we would respond to your truth with fear and trembling, that we would humble ourselves before you. Father, if there's anyone here who does not confess Jesus as Lord or believe in his heart that you raised him from the dead, Father, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them of this truth and of the importance for them to submit to this truth and to come to you to turn to Jesus in whom alone is salvation. We just thank you for your word. Thank you for all that it teaches us and pray that we would continue to walk in submission to it and to you and in the light of your love. In Jesus' name we pray.